Well, uh, good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Anthony. Uh, my wife, Sarah, and I are members here at Lincoln Community Church. Um, before we, we're going to be in Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34 this morning. If you'd like to go ahead and turn there. Uh, but I would just like to take a minute before we get to the text this morning to commend Huntington Community Church to you. Um, if you are, are here this morning and you do not have a church family to belong to, um, or you're here and you have questions about Jesus, this is a precious, precious place. I came here as a scared 19 or 20 year old in college. Didn't know what I believed, didn't know really what the gospel was. But I was met with so many people who took the time out of their life to sit with me, to talk with me, to walk through every possible scenario you could probably walk through a person with. So this place is so precious and special. I'm looking out here this morning and I just see a sea of faces of friends and family. Some of you in here are closer to me than people in my own family. And I love you very much. As Adam mentioned, this is Sarah and I's last Sunday here for the foreseeable future, unless the Lord leads us back. Um, and so with that, I would just like to pray with you, for you, before we get into the text. Father, Lord, I am so thankful for Huntington Community Church. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your kindness and your provision in bringing this special group of people together, Lord. And even more than that, thank you for bringing them together around such good news as the gospel. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room that you would do a work in their life, Lord, that you, they would see truly with the eyes of their heart how beautiful you are, how beautiful and wonderful the church is. So, Lord, I pray for them as they leave here today and go out into their lives and are apart, that you would just walk with them and continue to be their good shepherd. Lord, help us this morning as we go through your word in Luke chapter 12. Just give me clarity, protect me from error, protect people in this room from hearing error. And it is in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So Luke chapter 12, verse 22 through 34. Let's go ahead and read it and then say something. And he said to his disciples, this is Jesus, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat, or what you are to drink, or be worth. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with the treasure in the heavens that does not fail, 
where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus this morning and throughout the book of Luke has been concerned with altering people's perspectives. And so this morning we're going to sit with Jesus like we're in a counseling room, and we're going to let him alter our perspective. Well, what do I mean by perspective? Perspective is one of those kind of funny words that you can't really stamp down what exactly it means, but you know what it is. It's everything. It's, it's how we see things. It's how we live our lives. It's how we interact with others. It's the thing that drives our decision-making. If you have bad perspective, it can crush everything. And if you have good perspective, it can completely change your life. One of my favorite movies to watch um, around Christmas time is this other movie called It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, it's about this guy and George Bailey who lives in this town called Bedford Falls. He's a really sacrificial guy. I mean, he does all kinds of good stuff. He, he, he basically gives away all his money, gives away all of his hopes and dreams. And it's Christmas Eve and everything's kind of come to bear on him. And he's standing on a bridge He's thinking about killing himself, jumping into a river. And I wouldn't get my theology from this movie. It's not a biblical movie. But there's a guy drowning in the river. George rescues him. It turns out the guy's an angel. And that angel takes George back through his life to show him all the things that he missed, all the ways that provision was made, all the impact that he had. And at the end of the movie, George gets perspective, and it completely changes his life. And I think this morning, if we let Jesus reorder and reform our perspective, it could change our life. So let's look at this. So if you notice in verse 22, it says this, And he said to his disciples. So for context, we're in the middle of a chapter here. Jesus is talking to this crowd of thousands of people. And in the preceding verses, which we won't read this morning, but you could, verses 13 through 21, this guy asks him, he says, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus tells him this big parable, the point being that, look, your life is not all about stuff. In fact, it's foolish to build your life on stuff and to neglect having a treasure for yourself toward God. Because when God comes on Judgment Day to call your soul to account, what will you, what will you have to present to him? And so he's telling that story to the crowds, and then he turns to his disciples. So these words we're reading this morning are special words for Jesus' disciples. So maybe you're here this morning, and you're not a disciple of Jesus. You say, I don't, I don't know Jesus, I don't follow him. I want you to listen in and, and to hear what Jesus says, to hear the kind of life that he promises and offers you. And there's some of you in here that are his disciples. These words are precious Precious promises for you. And some of you just got back from CrossCon. And some of you in this room stood up and you raised your hand and when, when the, the charge was given, who will go overseas? You stood up and you said, I'll go. I'll give my life. I'll give everything to follow Jesus. Now, no doubt, it's already starting to sink in on you. What am I going to do? How am I going to pay for stuff? How am I going to get there? What about this degree I'm getting? I mean, Satan's already whispering in your ear. Your family's already whispering in your ear. You're already whispering in your own ear that if it's, it's too much, there's no way I ever could do this. Or maybe you're just here this morning and you just carry around this huge weight of anxiety. Um, 
or, or worry. And the dictionary defines anxiety as a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. So I'm just curious, by show of hands this morning, who in here has A, ever worried about anything, or B, is worried about something right now? Okay, so look around you. So you're in, you're in good company if you worry this morning. So these words are precious for us. Um, here's, here's some worries. Maybe see if you find yourself in any of these. What if the roof leaks? What if I lose my job? How are my kids doing? What does everybody think about me? What if I'm just not enough? What if I never live up? What if we can't pay the bills? What if my child gets to eat? What if people didn't like what I got in for Christmas? What if I don't make enough money as everybody else in my family? What if our car breaks down next week? I can go on and on and on and on. Worry is just this endless stream of things to look into the future and worry about. And Jesus is commanded here in verse 22. Look at the rest of the verse. It says, and he said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. The command from Jesus is, do not be anxious about anything. He says, your life, and then he says, your, what you'll eat or what you'll buy. So the sum total of your whole existence, Jesus says to his disciples, don't worry about it. Now some of you, including me, if you're hearing that this morning, you're like, Man, that is a huge thing for you to ask Jesus. I am anxious just by you telling me not to be anxious this morning. <laughs> But Jesus is such a good counselor because he doesn't just tell you something. He gives you reasons to believe him and why to trust him. So let's go on and let's see what Jesus has to say about why we don't have to be anxious. Look at verse 23. So I think Jesus shows us three things about worry. So we'll, we'll say three things about worry and then he shows us a new way to live. The first thing he tells us about worry is that worry is unnatural. Because it ignores the reality that God loves and cares for us. Look at verse 23. Jesus says, so don't be anxious about anything for or because life is more than food and the body more than clothing. In other words, worry is unnatural. Why? Because according to Jesus, you don't need to be worried about your life or your physical needs because your life is more than just stuff. What does he mean by this? Well, life is more than food. It's more than the body's more than clothing. Well, he means life is more than just the here and the right now. Of course, there's a material aspect to you. You do have a body. You do need to eat food. You do need to put clothes on. But that is not all that you are, according to Jesus. According to the whole witness of Scripture, you're also a soul. You, as a human being with a soul and a body, are capable of having a relationship with God. You see, in the beginning, when God created humans in his image and he placed them in the garden, they intimately knew him. They had fellowship with him. And worry was nowhere to be found. He provided everything they needed abundantly. They had perfect peace. You say, what happened? How did we get from that to me, this week, freaking out because I can't find my son's socks before we come to church. How do we get from there to there? And to, to just spiral. What's happened? Where does this unnatural worry come from? Well, we could say 
The worry is actually a result of something that's going on in the heart of, of unbelief in God. In other words, worry is not trusting God, and it's not believing what he says about himself and his willingness to take care of you. Worry, in other words, is a result of brokenness. This, we see this in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. The serpent comes to Eve, and he starts to suggest to her that God must be hiding something from humanity. And Adam and Eve take him up on that, and they decide to be their own gods. They decide to take life into their own hands. They decide to willingly not believe the things God had said about himself. And what's the result? Fear and anxiety in the world. Listen to what happens in Genesis 3, verses 7 through 10. Then the eyes of both, it's Adam and Eve, were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. See, pre-fall, Adam and Eve aren't worried about their nakedness at all. They're not worried about any needs. They know where everything is going to come from. But after choosing to be their own God, they become acutely aware of the fact that something is off and they try to hide themselves with leaves. They hide themselves behind creation. They sense something is, is off in their relationship with God and they try to take it into their own hands and fix it themselves. And that's exactly what sin does. Sin separates us from the loving, peaceful, relational experience we were intended to have with God. And it puts us in this broken state where we think we have to take everything into our own hands. We were never intended to worry, but because of sin now, our own sin, sin in the world, we're prone to. Prone to try to be our own gods, to hold everything together as tight as we can. Life was not meant to be lived that way. And that's the bad news. But the good news is that Jesus has come to set things right, to show us what life really looks like. Listen to how Jesus defines life in John 17. So here he says, life is not just material stuff. He says this in John 17, verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So there's an alternative. Jesus says, life's not just about stuff, so don't be worried about it, because life Eternal life that can't run out, that doesn't end, can be found by knowing God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Which means that disciples of Jesus can have real life again. Your life doesn't have to be defined by worry and anxiety. You can have, through a relationship with Jesus, life as it was intended to be. Intimate fellowship with your lovingly Heavenly Father and your Savior. So worry is unnatural. Jesus goes on and tells us some more reasons why it's unnatural. In verse 24, he says, Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Jesus says, Consider. Take a minute. Slow down and think. He says, Think about birds. Here's what birds don't do. They don't grow or harvest their own food. And they don't even have anywhere to put it if they did. 
Right? They're not capable. I've never seen like a, a pigeon outside building a storehouse to put all the stuff that he grew in his garden. And Jesus is saying they essentially live from one day to the next. And yet, he says, God feeds them every day. Despite their lack of ability, despite their lack of possessions, God takes care of little insignificant birds. And then did you hear the statement he followed up with? He says, of how much more value are you than birds? In other words, if God would take care of creatures that seem so small and insignificant, don't you think he's going to take care of you? You, human, who are made in his image. You, who he died on the cross for. You, who have a soul that he's known since before you even existed. It's so unnatural to worry. The rest of creation doesn't do it. Because worry says untrue things about God. Here's what we say about God when we worry. That the birds and the rest of creation don't say. When we worry, we say, well, God must not care about me. He's just going to leave me out to hang. I've got all this, this mountain of need in front of me. God's probably caught off guard by it. He must not care. Probably can't handle it. Or we say this about ourselves when we worry. My life is not important to God. Why would he care about me? In the scope of things, I'm so small and insignificant, and he's probably busy, so I should just take care of this myself. And Jesus says both of those responses about ourselves and about God are completely untrue because the, the God that we have is revealed in Scripture and through Jesus. Jesus says God is intimately involved in the lives of his creation, even down to the smallest bird. Back in uh, verses 6 and 7 of this same chapter, Jesus is giving the charge to his disciples not to fear anybody, to have right fear, to, 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 be, to have this right reverent fear of God. And he, he talk, starts talking about sparrows, and he says, God knows every single sparrow. And back then, sparrows weren't worth anything. You could buy five sparrows for two pennies. They're not worth anything. And then Jesus says this in Luke 12, 7. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. God knows every single hair on top of your head. Even if you don't have any hair, he still he knows something about that. And he cares deeply about you. More deeply than you even care about yourself. And what's more, God is so kind, He even takes care of people who want absolutely nothing to do with Him. If you're here today and you walk in and you hate God, and you say, I don't care, I don't want you, I don't want to know you, He even took care of you this morning. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 45. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. God cares about his small creation. God cares about people who don't even care about him. And God intimately cares about you if you have put your faith in Christ. He is so concerned with your well-being. So it's unnatural to worry because reality is, is that God's not far off. He's not uncaring. We are valuable to him and he cares deeply about us. I overheard this poem uh, in another sermon and it was helpful. You just kind of let your imagination run for a minute. It's called Overheard in an Orchard by Elizabeth Chains. Picture two little birds sitting on a wire looking down at the world. Said the robin to the sparrow, 
I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think it must be they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. When we worry, we say we have no heavenly father who loves us intimately. Martin Luther, one of the great pastors of the Reformation, once wrote this in his diary. He said, I have one preacher I love better than any other. It's my little Robin who preaches to me daily. I put his crumbs on my windowsill. He hops onto the sill when he wants his supply and takes as much as he desires to satisfy his need. From there, he always hops to a little tree close by and lifts his voice up to God and sings his carol of praise and gratitude, tucks his little head under his wings and goes to sleep to leave tomorrow to look after itself. He is the best preacher I have on earth. So the next time you're anxious, go outside and think how well the little birds are taken care of. And then think about how much more valuable you are to your Heavenly Father and how much more He loves you. So worry is unnatural. Then Jesus tells us worry is unhelpful. And it's unhelpful because we're not actually in control of anything. God is. Look what Jesus says in verse 25. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? So Jesus here, he says, think, and then he gets to the brass tacks of worry. He says, when it comes to worry, it's useless. It doesn't actually solve anything. Think about it for a second. Any of the stuff that you've worried about this week, has your worry actually shaped the outcome of what was going to happen? It may, have, it may have spurred you to action. It may have caused you to do something you might not have necessarily done, but it didn't actually go into the future and shape anything out there. Worry is pseudo-omnipotence. In other words, it's fake power. This is hard for me to hear, but it's so true. Worry doesn't change Anything. I may be worried all my my car won't start tomorrow. You're worrying about it's not going to change the fact that that car is not going to start. I may be worried that I'll die tomorrow. Me being worried about whether I'm going to die tomorrow is not going to change the fact that it might be coming. It just makes me feel for the moment like I am in control. Look what Jesus says again in verse 26. He says, if you're not able to do as small a thing as that, add even an hour onto your life. Why are you anxious about the rest? We have to come to grips with our finiteness as people. We are not God. We don't have control of our lives that some of us, myself included, want to have. Worry doesn't actually do anything helpful. It just puts this fake king on the throne for a little bit until he's dethroned and a new one comes along later. The implication here from, from this text and from the rest of the passage is that we need to have a right understanding of ourselves and our limits. Because once we, once we have that understanding, we can stop trying to be our own king and go to the only king who can actually make a difference. Paul follows that logic in, in Philippians. He gives them an alternative to this pseudo-omnipotence, fake power. He writes this to them in Philippians 4, chapter 6 and 7. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So in other words, Paul says, instead of trying to be God yourself, take the day off and turn everything that's worrying you over to the one who has real omnipotence. And as you see the, the, the promise in Philippians 4, when you do that, when you say, I have no control over anything going on in my life, we get promised a peace that makes no sense. You could be living the worst day of your life. Turn it over to God who can actually do something about it and have a peace believer that makes no sense. So worry is it's unnatural and it's unhelpful because we're not actually in control. God is. The third thing to notice about worry from this passage is that it's unnecessary. Because our Heavenly Father already knows what we need, and He delights to give us His kingdom. Look at verse 27 and 28. Jesus says to think again. He says, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will He clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. So this time Jesus says, think about flowers. Think about how they grow. They don't work. They don't toil. They don't spin. And even Solomon, one of the most glorious kings that history has ever known, did not have the beautiful clothes that God provides for the flowers. Same logic you use with the birds. Flowers and grass, they're pretty, but they're insignificant. And they don't last very long. Like, think about... How many times you guys have planted flowers in your garden and then they die and they don't come back? Or think about maybe there was a pretty flower in your yard and you mowed the grass and you cut that flower down and it's gone. But Jesus says God is still intimately concerned about something so insignificant as flowers. And the implication is, is that if he would take care of flowers needs, which are finite, they're, 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 they don't last forever, but we do. Jesus is trying to say if, he, if he'll, he'll meet the, the food needs of the birds, the clothing needs of the flowers, he will for sure do it for his disciples. That should take a huge weight off your shoulders because that means you don't have to hold your life together. Jesus says that because of God's willingness and goodness to take care of you, you're free from worrying, having to worry about your material needs to being able to worry about things that matter, as we'll see here in just a second. Jesus says this in verse 29. He says, And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. So I don't think the implication for us is that we don't have to work. That I don't think everybody should go out and quit their jobs tomorrow, or that it's, it's silly to save money, or it's silly to not go to the, or it's silly to it's silly to not go to the grocery store tomorrow, right? Like we, we need to do those things. But I think the key to understanding what Jesus is getting at is in verse 29 where he uses that word, seek. He says, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. To seek implies that you're searching after it constantly, like your life depends on it. And Jesus says, don't seek all this stuff. Don't live your life like the number one priority is to get enough stuff and to hold on to it. 
And don't be worried. Why? Because as we've seen, God will provide every single thing that you need because he cares about you. Verse 30, Jesus says, For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Jesus says, everyone all over the world is living this way. They're just seeking stuff to satisfy themselves. They're hand-wringing. They're nervous of, are my needs going to be met? Am I going to have enough next week? I, I'm this scarcity mindset. i got to get enough. i got to hold on to it. And Jesus says, that's not your reality if you know him. Your reality is that your heavenly father knows every single thing you need. Our father knows. Have you caught that or not? Up to this point in this passage, Jesus has been using God for, for God's name. And now he shifts it to this familial language. He calls God our father. And he says, your father knows what you need. In other words, your father's not caught off guard by the details and daily needs of your life. And it's not like you worry a bunch and then like your, your ticket flies up to heaven and God's sitting behind his desk just like going nuts at a computer trying to dispense enough blessing and he gets it and he says, oh, Sarah and Anthony and Silas need food this week. Better check and see if I got enough food. No, Jesus says he already knew that need before we even prayed for it, before we even brought it to them. He knew it. And if he's your father, do you think for a second your perfect heavenly father is going to hold anything back from you that you need? Absolutely not. So the implication there is, is that if there's something that you don't have, God's not withholding something from you. You just, you just don't need it right now. Because if you did need it, Jesus is clearly saying, then you could bank that your heavenly father would make sure that you had it. Luke and, and Matthew both record this same uh, teaching from Jesus in, in Matthew, uh, it's in Matthew 7, verses 9 through 11. Luke uh, connects it to our Father's willingness to provide us with the Holy Spirit. Matthew provides, or connects it with his willingness to meet our physical needs. And I, I think both of those, our Father is willing to provide both. But here it is from Matthew. Matthew writes, records Jesus as saying, which one of you if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Yes, our son is 11 months old. And you better believe, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that as his father, I am Concerned most of all with what he needs. Even when he has no idea what he needs. When he's, he's hungry and he's crying for his bottle, I make sure that he gets, he has no idea where that bottle comes from. But I know that he needs it and I make sure that it's there. When there's danger, even if he doesn't realize it, I remove the danger. I protect him from it. I have a bigger picture of his life right now than he does. And I will always make sure that he gets what he needs, even if he doesn't know it or necessarily want it. On the other hand, I will also withhold from him what could do him harm or be bad for him as his father. I am always looking out for him because I love him. In fact, it brings me a lot of joy 
to meet his needs. All I want for him is the best and to make sure that he gets exactly what he needs. It may not be what he wants, but I'll make sure that he has what he needs. And Jesus is saying is that if we as earthly fathers, who Jesus calls evil, still know how to take care of our good children, then imagine how great of care your heavenly father wants to take of you. Jesus says he will give you good things, things that you need. And all you have to do is ask. But as we've established from this passage, he knows even before we ask. So we just bring him the need and he brings us the supply. So worry is, it's unnatural. It's unhelpful. It's unnecessary. And now Jesus gives us an alternative way to live. Look at verse 31. Jesus says, instead of this, instead of worrying like the nations of the world do, instead, seek, there's that word again, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Instead, so instead of living your life anxiously, instead of, of living as though you have to get as much as you can get and, and hold on to it, Jesus says, instead of doing that, Seek his kingdom. We have a renewed perspective when we realize who God is and how much he cares for us. And with that perspective, Jesus says it's, we can go about his business worry-free. And his business is to seek his kingdom. In other words, because God cares for you, because God will provide for you, you are freed up to be concerned with what really matters. You can invest your whole life in God's kingdom, making disciples, preaching the gospel, living to serve others, living to serve your church family, not out of need, but out of abundance. And Jesus says that as you do this, as you make the kingdom your chief objective, because you're so free in him, because you know he's going to take care of everything, he says, as you do this, your physical needs will be taken care of. Notice, you are not seeking the kingdom in order to get stuff. That would be a, a, a perversion of this text. Jesus is not saying, hey, go seek the kingdom and I'll give you everything. He's saying, because you have everything, go seek the kingdom. That is such a radical promise. Even as I read it and I'm thinking, I'm like, He's promising that he'll take care of every need. And I'm like, every need? Like, like everything? I mean, there's got to be, like, can't be all of it. But Jesus says, all these things, anything you need, will be added to you as you live for the kingdom. And that makes me wonder. I wonder if so many of us are afraid to be living for the kingdom because we're too afraid that there won't be enough left over for us after we do. You know, if I go talk to that coworker, or I talk to my boss about Jesus, I could lose my job. What am I going to do for money then? How am I going to pay the bills? God might call me to go overseas for the gospel. Where am I going to live? What am I going to eat? It may look like giving up time at work to spend time with your family. Where's the money going to come from? But the promise is, is you, believer, you, disciple, go live on mission. And I, God the Father, Jesus, will take care of the need. We don't have to, to turn there, but Luke gives us a picture of this. Back in chapter 9, there's, there's this crowd that comes to Jesus. 
They're, they're wanting to hear from him. It's the end of the day. They're, they're all hungry. And Jesus' disciples just want to send them away so they can go find food somewhere else. But Jesus tells his disciples to be on his, his kingdom business. And he says, no, you guys feed the crowd. They respond and say, Jesus, we don't have much to work with. We got five loaves and two fish. And there's 5,000 people. And Jesus tells the people to sit down. And the disciples do it anyway. And they distribute the bread to each of the, of the, the families that are there. And everybody has enough to eat. Well, guess how many disciples there are? Pop quiz. How many apostles did Jesus have? Twelve. And guess how many baskets of bread are left over? Twelve. Enough for every single disciple. And the picture there is that we go live on mission. And Jesus will meet every single need. You can, you can count on him that there will be enough left over for you at the end of it. Jesus doubles down. Look at verse 32. He says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's so tender. Fear not, little flock. Jesus looking at his disciples as their good shepherd. He says, It's your Father's prerogative. It's his, his good pleasure. The thing he wants to do is to give you the thing he's telling you to go do. He's telling you to go live on mission, to go make disciples. To go spread the gospel, and he is going to honor that, and he's going to meet your needs. It's his good pleasure. It reminds me of Psalm 23. David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pasture, he leads me beside still water, he restores my soul, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Because of God's promise to us, we can live radically for his kingdom. Look what Jesus says in verse 33. He says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. In other words, live generously. Not being afraid of holding back anything. Not being afraid there won't be enough for us. Because Jesus says, we have a treasure in the heavens. You know, so much of the world has this, I mentioned it earlier, this scarcity mindset. There's not enough for me. And if I spend, I'm not going to have enough. But not Christians. Christians can live out of this abundance mindset. That money I have, it's not mine. God loaned it to me to use for his kingdom. That house I have, it's not mine. God loaned it to me to use for his kingdom. That food I have, it's not mine. God loaned it to me so I can use for his kingdom. We can give as much as we need to in the service of God's kingdom because he will continue to provide for us. Jesus said when we, when we live that way, when we invest in the kingdom, we have money bags. Did you catch that? We have money bags that don't grow old, and treasure that doesn't fail. Treasure that can't be stolen from us. Treasure that doesn't wear out. Treasure that doesn't decay. I don't know about you guys, but as soon as I get paid on Friday, it's gone. But Jesus is saying here that when we have him, he's never gone. He never runs out of us. In other words, our inheritance is inexhaustible. We can draw from him forever and ever. From his infinite supply. 
Uh, maybe you're familiar with Jim Elliott. He was a, a young missionary who died in 1956 in Ecuador. Uh, he'd only been married for three years uh, when the Huronda tribe took his life while he was trying to reach them with the gospel. But, but Jim saw the reality of this text, of, of God's kingdom. And he went and he spent everything living in service to try to make disciples and spread the gospel. And he wrote this. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In other words, living this way, believing that the kingdom is what matters, believing that God's going to take care of every need, that's not foolish. Living the opposite way is foolish. Hoarding stuff is foolish. Living for yourself and for gain is foolish. But if the gospel is true, and it is, then the most logical thing that you can ever do is give everything away in service. Give your whole self in service to God's kingdom. Because you are going to gain so much more than this world could ever give you. Charles Spurgeon wrote this when he thought about God's provision in our life. He said, Our Father holds the purse strings. And what we live for His sake, He can repay a thousandfold. It's ours to obey His will. And we may rest assured He will provide for us. The Lord will be no man's debtor at the last. Let the worst come to the worst. Let all the money go. We have not lost our treasure. For that is above, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. Peter asked Jesus, he said, Jesus, in Luke 18, he said, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or, or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. You can live radically for the kingdom, knowing that your Father will take care of every single need. You may be hearing this and saying, I would love to live like this, but how can I? I, I reading this text, you know, I'm thinking, I don't live like this. This is so hard. To which I would say, yeah, this is impossible to live this way if Christ is not your treasure. You know, most of the time the Bible would advise you, do not follow your heart. But here in this passage, Jesus says, go ahead, follow your heart, trace it. Because when you trace back your heart, you'll find your treasure. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What's he mean by that? He means that when you find the thing that you love most of all, you'll find out who you are. You'll find out what you will live for. Because we are what we love. In other words, our identity is tied to directly what we treasure most. Whatever has your worship has you. Listen to how important Solomon in Proverbs says that the heart, the core of who you are is. He says, keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. Your heart, what you worship, who you are, what your identity is tied to, will make or break you. If you worship status, status has your heart. You belong to it. When you don't get enough of it, your heart will dry up and you'll wear yourself out trying to get more. If relationships are your treasure, they have your heart. When one doesn't work out, You'll crush yourself and the other person under the weight of those expectations. If money is your treasure, money has your heart. 
Your joy will be dependent on how much money you have or how little you have. If religion is your treasure, religion has your heart. When you realize that you can't be good enough to meet God's standards, you'll start to, to justify yourself or do anything you can to hold on to that. If career or your grades are your treasure, they have your heart. You'll do whatever it takes to advance to the top, and you'll find out that you still want more. And so the logic here is you need a better treasure. You need to throw that treasure out and have a new one. Your heart needs something better to live for, something better to build its identity on, something that is incorruptible that it can latch onto. What is that treasure? It's Christ. If Christ is your treasure, you'll always have enough. You have forgiveness of your sins. You have a right standing before God. You are adopted as His precious child. You have God the Holy Spirit living in you. You have a renewed purpose for your life. And you have a promise of constant provision from Him. In other words, an infinite treasure that cannot run out of you, that cannot be taken away, that cannot be destroyed, that cannot die, that cannot let you in. You see, we've considered birds, we've considered fatherhood, we've considered flowers. And the last place we have to consider is the cross and the tomb. See, the cross shows us what our greatest need is. If our greatest need was to have a house, Jesus would have came as a real estate. If our greatest need was to have a bunch of food, Jesus would have came as a chef. But Jesus came as a savior, as our substitute. The cross shows us our greatest need is to be covered by God for our sins and to have a reconciled relationship with Him. That's where Paul's mind goes in Romans 8.32. Paul thinks about the cross when he thinks about his need. He says, He, that's Jesus, or that's God the Father, who did not spare His own Son, that's Jesus, but graciously gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him Give us all things. In other words, if God would do that, you, broken in sin, separated from Him, if He would go to the cross to rescue you, you can be assured that every single other need you have is small scale to Him. He provided the greatest thing that you need. And the tomb shows us that Christ is alive and that He is the guarantee of God's covenantal love for us. We can rest assured that if, if he would do all of that, he is carefully watching over every small detail of our lives. And because of that, we can go out, we can live on mission. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise. Lord, I pray this morning that this would not just be words on a page, that this would be reality. That we wouldn't just say that you care about us, that we wouldn't just say that you are our treasure and that you would bury that so deep in us that we would live out of that. Father, we love you. We ask for your help to believe this. And thank you for your kindness and your goodness this morning. It's in your name, Jesus. Amen.